Father, as I prayed earlier, we wish to sit at your feet and learn. And Father, we wish to gain wisdom and insight and help us, Lord, to retain this information that you have provided for us. Obviously, you want us to have it. And I pray that it would not be far from recall in our minds, that we may be able to establish ourselves as much as it is our responsibility in the faith, and that we may assist others in doing the same thing, being able to recall the stories and what they mean. We thank you for the chance to do this, Lord. We are so free in this country to still be able to do it. We ask that never be taken away. But we thank you for the chance in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're currently in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. And the simple truths communicated in Scripture are what God wants us to go away with. And so when we look at a book or the Gospel of John here, we have to look at it with the observation, interpretation, application. That is the inductive Bible study method. For instance, we start with the story, a parable, a song, or a poem. Uh, then we want to go on to the meaning of that story, parable, song, or poem. We don't want to simply take a parable, for instance, uh, one of the kingdom parables, the sower of the seed. We have four types of soils in which that seed falls on. We need to understand the meaning of that parable in order to grow. If we just know the story, well, it really doesn't benefit us whatsoever. We have to have the interpretation of that. And thirdly, the application of the story, parable, song, or poem. We want to make sure that as we read it, like for instance in the parable of the sower of the seed, you have the, the path that the seed falls on, you have the rocky ground, you have the ground that has the weeds in it that come up, and then you have the furrow ground, the, the ground that is ready to receive the seed. We want to make sure our hearts are like the fourth one, the, the tilled up ground. And so we want to be able to remember the stories, what their meaning is, and be able to apply it. With this in mind, we've gone through six chapters already. Chapter 1 dealt with God is the Word and the Word is God. That's a basic theme over that particular chapter. The second chapter, we had the first miracle, the first mayhem where Jesus went in and he cleared the temple, the first mandate where they said, prove yourself to be the Messiah. We want to see a miracle, right? That's what was in chapter 2. Chapter 3... There was the secret talk with Nicodemus and this idea of being born again, and he didn't understand that, so the seeker balked. First, it was the secret talk. Then Nicodemus, the seeker, he balked at, what do you mean I have to be born again? And then also the saving snake was the Savior's fate, and the Savior's fate brings saving grace. Remember those on your list that you had there? And he referred back to the snake that was lifted up during the judgment on the nation of Israel. And there was a pole and a snake that was on the pole. And anybody who hangs on a tree, the pole was made out of a uh, wood. Anybody who hangs on a tree becomes a curse. Well, that curse that Jesus became for us brought us the saving grace. And then the Anon dip and John must slip. That's where John was baptizing near Anon in the Jordan River. And he said he must de increase and I must decrease, referring to Jesus Christ. The fourth chapter, you have the Samaritan woman who was confronted, the disciples who were dumbfounded, the Samaritans who were enlightened, and the royal, a royal official's son who was enlivened. All of those things were taking place. If you remember the Samaritan woman who had five husbands and the man she was living with was not her husband at that particular time and she believed what Jesus had to say. She grabbed most of the Samaritans. They came out and believed in him. He stayed there a few days and then after that we have this royal official son 
that was revived. He was healed. Chapter 5, an act of healing by Jesus, an accusal and defaming of Jesus, authentic claims of Jesus, his bona fides, why he was in fact the Messiah. There were 10 things that I gave you at that time. And then there is the accusal and defaming of Jesus. And we know that the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, they simply rejected Jesus. Chapter 6, Jesus feed the multitude. Jesus says, fear not, and Jesus is the bread of life. And we went through that whole thing about Jesus being the bread of life and how his disciples who were with him were offended at this saying. And then his disciples, the 12, he asked them, are you going to go too? And he goes, where are we going to go? There is no place else to go. There is only one God. There is only one way to salvation. And Jesus is it. In chapter 7, I'm going to tell you what they are ahead of time. I think you have them on there. We have the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus avoids Judea. And when I refer to Judea, it means Jerusalem. Judea is in, or excuse me, Jerusalem is in Judea. It's like San Diego is in San Diego County. It's that type of thing. It's an area. Uh, Jesus enters Judea and Jesus teaches in Judea. First of all, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. There are seven feasts in Israel that they celebrate, major feasts, and there are a couple of minor feasts that they participate in. The first one is Passover or Pesach or First Fruits, and it takes place April 23rd through 28th, and we know what Passover is. It is this idea of the resurrection. It is the idea of the atonement. All of that, it's when we have Easter, the Jews have Passover. And unleavened bread takes place inside of that Passover week. And then there is Pentecost or Shavuot, uh, which is the Feast of Weeks. And that feast is when we know from uh, Scripture that the church was born in that particular uh, feast. Then there is the fall feast. The first ones were the spring feast, and then there are the fall feast, the feast of trumpets, the feast of atonement, or the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And then there's the feast of tabernacles, or Sukkot, or booths, or ingathering. Now that takes place, those three take place in October, which is coming right up, beginning October 2nd, 2016. It starts with the feast of trumpets. And then during that time, on the 12th, is the Day of Atonement. And Tabernacles goes from the 17th to the 23rd. So most of the month of October is the Feast of Tabernacles. It is coming up. If you were to drive to any synagogue, you would probably see a Sukkot, which is a booth of some kind, or it'd be palm leaves over the top. And it it shouldn't be... uh, completely covered over you should be able to see the stars through it and that's to remind the jews of their fact the fact that they went through the wilderness then there's these couple other feasts that they have purim does anybody know what the feast of purim is all about yes
that he couldn't rescind the law. But he did make a law that the Jews could defend themselves. Now, what was her uncle's name? Mordecai. Mordecai or Mordecai, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah. And he told her, you do not know, but for this particular time, you were born. And whether she loses her life or not, she was to go and do it. And that was her attitude. Nothing else was more important than that. And this is called the Mardi Gras of the Jewish community. If you've seen pictures of this particular celebration, the kids all dress up. I mean, they dress up. You should see some of these costumes that these kids are in. And it's just make and marry. They're colorful. It's, It's almost like they're Halloween and Mardi Gras mixed together. And it's a fantastic time for them. It's a time to make merry because the Jews were, in fact, saved from utter destruction. And, of course, we know that Satan was behind that. And then there's Hanukkah. Now, depending on where you come from in the world, it's spelled with a C-H or it's spelled with an H. But what is Hanukkah? Anybody know? Feast of, yes, it is a feast of lights. You know this, Cheryl, right? Anybody else know this? Okay, I have a question for you. Did Jesus celebrate Hanukkah? He did. He celebrated Hanukkah. I go, why is this not mentioned in the Bible? Be, be, well, this was Judas Maccabeus. Remember Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean revolt when that took place and then they went into the temple to reconsecrate it. They were able successfully to throw off the yoke of oppression and because of that, they rededicated the temple and they only had enough oil for one day to burn. Miraculously, it burned for eight days. And so that they celebrate this. It was a miracle that this took place. And so they celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah lasts for eight days, and they have eight candles on their menorah, where the menorah inside the temple only has seven candlesticks. Wait, I take that back. Is that nine? I think it's nine. It's nine uh, candlesticks because you have the center one that usually is higher or lower, and then you have eight days, and you take that center one, and you light each one on the day. So uh, menorahs will either have seven or they will have nine uh, candlesticks on them. So these are the feast, and this is going on all year long. Uh, These people remember God and what he has done. But we're going to go back to this feast of tabernacles, feast of booths, feast of ingathering. God had set this up, and this is something that we are going to practice in the millennial reign of Christ. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 says, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the people of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no reign. So there will be a judgment during the millennial reign of Christ that if the countries that fought against the Lord do not go up to Jerusalem and celebrate this feast, then God will judge them by having no rain on their country. There will be a void of water falling from the sky. So we're in John chapter 7, verse 1, and it starts with after this. And this is after the disciples left. And Jesus told the 12, or asked the 12, are you guys going to leave me too? And they said, where are we going to go? So after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were there waiting to take his life. So the area of Judea, not just Jerusalem, they were waiting for Jesus to show up and they were going to ambush him. They were going to kill him because they didn't like what he was doing. 
But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So what's their motivation for having him go? Look, you're around here all the time. Just go ahead. Go to Jerusalem. Show yourself to everybody there. It's probably a little bit of sarcasm in here from his brothers, his half-brothers, Remember, they were the sons of Joseph, and it is erroneously believed that these were Joseph's sons before Jesus was born. I do not believe that for a second, and it is used to buttress the idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin, which is not true. Scripture nowhere teaches that. Uh, The one that broke the womb for Mary was Jesus, and then she had all these kids, brothers and sisters. He had a big family that was there. And his brothers, we don't know exactly how many he had, but he had some brothers and he had some sisters. So proximity to Jesus does not guarantee saving faith. That's number one in your fill in there. Just because you've been around Jesus, they grew up with him, right? So growing up in the house, you you can imagine these houses weren't very big at that time. And if there's six or eight people inside of that household counting the parents and they probably had bunk beds or they were sharing beds and the brothers of Jesus were turning to him and said, just because you're the oldest, you think you're so perfect, don't you? Well, he was. He was perfect. And what about his sisters too? Did they get on him? And was he a good child? Was he a bad child? Did Mary ever tell him, no, don't do that? Or was he always doing that which was perfect? You know, these are questions you can contemplate. We don't have the answers to these. Was he the perfect child? Did he not get colicky? Did he never cry except when he was hungry or he needed to be changed? You know, he grew up and these people knew him. We know who you are. You're our brother. You're nothing special. And a prophet is not accepted in his own country, in his own town, let alone his own family. Have you ever tried to go back and witness to your own family? Did they receive you? Oh, tell me more. I want to know more about this. Usually a family will reject you. And here, they have clearly not accepted Christ even after he has performed miracles. Number one miracle was the wedding at Cana. Their whole family was probably there serving. And they didn't, so you did a trick. What's the big deal? No, it was a miracle that was performed, and they still didn't believe in him. Verse 6, Therefore Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come for you. Any time is is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast because for me the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now this occurs four times in John chapter 2 verse 4, in John chapter 7 verse 6, in verse 8, in verse 30, and chapter 8 and verse 20. God's timing is perfect. He kept on saying, it's not yet my time. The first time it was done was at the wedding uh, at, at Cana in Galilee. And that's when Jesus turned to his mother and said, my, my time is not yet. What's going on? Well, apparently in just a few minutes, it was time and he performed a miracle. So you want to make sure you go back and you look at those that God's timing is perfect. And that's number two. God's ways are not our ways. God's timing, not necessarily our timing. When we want God to act, he doesn't always act. Sometimes he does. Remember when Lazarus died? 
And Mary went to him and said, If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Well, it was in God's timing, and he was resurrected, and God got glorified. And so we just simply have to be patient. Uh, Isaiah 55, verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the things we think about, God is not even on the same plane. He has the entire world in mind when he's planning out even what happens to any one of us individually. Ecclesiastes 3.1 also says, oh, this is a wonderful song from, I believe, the 70s. I don't think it goes all the way back to the 60s. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. The time to be born. Remember the song? It was a, a great song. Also, Jesus enters Judea. So first, he avoided Judea. But now he's going there. Verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? So they're, they're counting on him showing up. Verse 12. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for the fear of the Jews. The Jews had this chokehold over anyone, and they would threaten them if they were not obedient to their wishes by casting them out of the synagogue, casting them out from fellowship at the temple. And that's how they kept the people in line. That is more like a cult activity. There are cults today that will do the exact same thing. Can you guys name them? Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. If you do something they don't like, namely, if you start talking to Christians that aren't Mormons or Christians that aren't JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, you can be excommunicated, fail to be in good standing. The Church of Christ, some churches of Christ do this too. Uh, if you go to a particular church other than the Church of Christ, even that church, and if you're not baptized in that church in the name of Jesus only, then chances are you aren't even saved. That's the decree that they will place upon you. And then in uh, the Jehovah Witnesses organization of the Mormons, sometimes they're not even allowed to communicate with the individual who has been excommunicated. Marriages fall apart. I mean, it's just a sad thing. And that's what the Jewish leaders were doing. And I know Jesus hated this fact that they were doing that. Going on. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed. Now this means marveled when was the last thing that you saw the last thing you experienced where you just marveled now marveling to me is your jaw drops open and your eyes open wide and you you go you kind of cough. You can't believe what you're seeing or some other sound, a monosyllabic sound comes out of your mouth because you are just so taken back. You're going, you're speechless. That's what they, these people were watching Jesus and they were just amazed. They were marveled. They were taken back. They were turning to each other going, did you see that? You know, that type of thing. That's what Jesus, this particular feast you should see what jesus does here you will see what jesus does here how did this man get such learning without having studied 
Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Now, I could spend the whole night just on these verses. But if I do that, we'll never get through the book of John. But Jesus indicts them. He says, Moses gave you the law, and you don't even keep the law. Now, who do you think he's pointing to? The Jews, the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, the ones who were in charge, the henchmen, the cohorts of those who are in the temple. That's who he's directing this to. And by the way, this kind of goes back and forth, and you have to be careful assigning too much to the crowd or too much to the Jews. And, and you can tell, if you look at it closely, when he's referring to the Jews and the leaders and the Pharisees and when he's referring to the crowd. He goes on, or excuse me, I want to make some points with this. The first one there, many seek him. In other words, there's a lot of people in this particular setting that are gathering around Jesus and they want to hear what he has to say. They're going, so what you, what's he going to say today? This is that prophet, right? Let's go listen to what he has to say. So he has a crowd around him. How many people are there? When, when these festivals, when these feasts would take place in Jerusalem, there could be 500,000 people to a million people in Jerusalem. I mean, they would just come in, certainly hundreds of thousands on the low estimate, maybe a million on the high side. So how many would be in the temple court? It's a limited area. There was probably just nudging room only. Have you ever been to Disneyland like on New Year's? I have. I made that mistake. For you guys who know uh, Disneyland, you know where the Pirates of the Caribbean is? In New Orleans, there's a bridge that goes over right there that you walk over. Patty and I got caught in that, literally got caught. We were shoulder to shoulder, and the bridge, the people on the bridge were not moving. We would start taking little inch steps, and then the whole crowd would kind of inch. That's how many people were there. Never go on New Year's Eve. Patty and I went, and there were a lot of people seeking to have fun at Disneyland. Well, how many people were listening to Jesus? Probably Hundreds, if not thousands, if they could pack in that area. Or he would sit on the southern steps, the Solomon steps that are there by his stables. And there could be thousands. It's almost like an amphitheater in that particular area. But if he's in the temple courts and the colonnades that are there, you know, there would be several hundred that are trying to listen to what he has to say. So many sought after him. Many seek him. Secondly, most have an opinion about him. Did you notice some said, well, let's actually go back to it. It says, he is a good man, in verse 12, and others says, say, no, he deceives the people. So everybody has an opinion about Jesus Christ. If you want an opening line, if you want to go talk to somebody about Christ and Christianity, say, can I ask you a few questions about God? And they'll probably say, sure. Most people want to talk about God. Say, what do you think about Jesus? And they will come up. If they're a believer, they'll say, he is God over all, forever praised, Amen. Or they will say, well, he is a good teacher. He was a prophet. He was crucified. Um, probably a good man. 
they would have all these opinions. But those are all low bar of who Jesus is. Jesus is much more than that. So everybody has an opinion about him. Thirdly, many are impressed by him. The people were amazed. Even the people that didn't believe in him were amazed. The guards who later on, as we'll see, they were sent to arrest him. No man has ever talked like that. So even the guards that worked for the Jews who were in charge, who wanted to arrest Jesus and kill him, they didn't arrest him because they were just so taken aback. They were so amazed by who he was. They were impressed by him. And fourthly, most opposed him. Remember Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through verse 16. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So that's what we're supposed to do. He goes on in this and says, watch out for the false prophets, for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And he's referring to the Jewish leaders at that time. Now, broad is the road that leads to destruction. If you go up Highway 5 or Highway 805, especially where they merge, have you ever counted the lanes? I've been in that traffic. It's like, 25 lanes going across that all those people go through there and maybe you've seen the most dangerous trail that's in china or mongolia it actually goes along a face of a rock and sometimes there are two two by fours and sometimes those two by fours are missing and there's a cable up top that you grab onto that takes you around and it drops like three thousand feet straight down and they call it the most dangerous hike in the world. And if you've ever seen pictures about that, I'd get all tense on the inside just thinking about going on something like that. But that's the road that leads to heaven. Is narrow and few there be that find it. There are not many people on that trail. But how many people do you find at the three o'clock hour or four o'clock hour at the eight oh five five merge? Thousands of people are going through there. Tens of thousands of people. And that's the road to destruction. And we want to make sure we make that differentiation. Five, or fifthly, many will accuse him of falsehoods, untruths, fictions, fibs. They've said he is demon-possessed, right? They, They did not want to accept what he had to say. Not because it wasn't true, it's just because they didn't want to accept it. Now, many will oppose him. Most will not make it to heaven. And most of the people that we know, most of the people that we see... They are not destined for heaven. And that's why it's our job to do that. But have you ever questioned, are you really saved? I know I have. I've sat down and gone, do I really believe? I just sinned. Do I really believe if I just sinned? And then I learned about the grace of God. I go, Oh, good. I know I did wrong, and God forgives me, and so I get to cling to that grace and cling to that mercy. But how does one ensure they are saved? How can we be assured that we are saved? When you start to doubt, well, I think that there are some things, first of all, in Scripture that spell this out for us. First of all, and you don't have this on your list, and you can probably write it in there. I think it's on the other side of your, uh, you have a little room on your um, outline there. First of all, by faith. How do we know that we are saved? We are saved by faith. It's not by what we do. It's by who we believe in. Acts chapter 30, 16, verse 30. He who brought them out, this is Philippian jailer, and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the number one thing that we have to hold on to, our faith. That is the most precious thing. Then secondly, by fruit. First, by faith. Secondly, 
by fruit. If you have acts of love, if you have sacrificial giving, if you do so without expecting to be paid back, if you are giving of your time, your resources, your prayer time, your energy, all of those things, no, I'm not here. Who didn't turn that off? What's the big idea on that? Man, yeah. See, I just sinned. Am I saved? Okay, let me turn this off here. Okay, there we go. So, by faith and then by fruit, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 says, and this is referring to deacons, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance of their faith in Christ. The more you give to Christ, the more assurance you have. But the more you give to Christ in works of service or of your resources, it doesn't mean that assures your salvation. You're already saved. These flow as a result. The fruit will just naturally take place. Thirdly, by fellowship with God and with the body of Christ. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 talks about those who have gone out from us. The reason they went out from us is because they were never part of us. And so if you have somebody in the body that decides to leave, then they were never part of the body of Christ. And those who fellowship on a regular basis, who seek it out, well, that's great assurance that you're saved because you want to be with the body of Christ, like-minded people. And also, excuse me, that first reference was 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. The second one is you have fellowship with God. And what that means is you have a time where you get alone with God that you pray, you seek him out, you ask for his wisdom, you can do it on your knees, you can do it sitting in a chair, you can do it standing up, but it's just you and him. You have that time of fellowship, and it, you make it regular. It isn't something like, for instance, those men who are married in here, if you only sh- showed up and saw your wife once a month, how do you think that would go over? Not very well, right? Not ve- I said you who are married, right? It would not go over very well. And so you want to make sure that you're spending time with God. We are the bride of Christ, and he wants to spend time with us. And fourth, by faithfulness. How faithful are you to God? How faithful are you to the body? How faithful are you to those who are unsaved? Just faithfulness. Does that ring a bell with you? So by faith... By fruit, by fellowship, and by faithfulness, you can have great assurance if you just follow those things. So going back, verse 20 says, You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Now, this idea of being demon-possessed, Jesus said that all sins will be forgiven, man, except for attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. That is the unforgivable sin at least when Jesus was around. There are commentators that would say that only happened during the time of Christ. Is it happening today? Well, I can assure you that the person who is attributing the works of God to the works of Satan is not saved. I know that. But is that the unforgivable sin? To tell you the truth, I don't know if that is today or not, but I will tell you, in my estimation, the unforgivable sin is the one who refuses to repent for their entire life. They're given chance after chance after chance and they say no, no, no. That is the unforgivable sin of not accepting the salvation that Jesus has when he offers it freely. You're trampling underfoot the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so if if you think you've committed the unforgivable sin, have you asked God to forgive you? Well, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. If, If you've walked away from the face, well, 
possibly you have and you're not able to return again unto repentance. So you just want to make sure you're not even going up to the edge of that one, right? And encouraging others, just don't go up to the edge of that. Don't blaspheme God. Just make sure you turn to him and ask for forgiveness and he will have mercy on their soul. That's what you pray for, that he will and allow them to get saved. Even if you think they've committed the unforgivable sin, pray for them. But scripture says, well, you shouldn't even pray about that. Look, all I'm going to tell you is, Pray for the unsaved. Pray for those who have gone away. Pray for those who blaspheme God. And God's going to work it all out in the end. And if you think you're close, if you're here, you're not. Okay? You got that? Going on. John chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus said to them, this is where Jesus teaches in Judea, I did one miracle, and you were all astonished yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. You circumcised a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me and healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Number one there that you have, the Bible never teaches do not judge. Jesus teaches judge correctly. Now, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, do not judge falsely. Do not judge hypocritically. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 says, The spiritual man makes judgment about all things. If you're spiritual, you judge everything. You judge politics. You judge culture. You judge relationships, you judge personal behavior, but don't do it hypocritically. For instance, if you go to somebody and you say, man, you got to stop drinking. You are a drunk and God is going to judge those who are drunkards and they're not getting into heaven according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And you can read it here. Let me read it for you. And then you go home and pop a brewski and you're having like seven of them. As you sit down, that is judging hypocritically. Don't be doing that. If you go up to a person and they're fully drunk, say, man, you need to repent of that. I know that I'm a sinner too and I'm prone to the flesh, but I know it's wrong and we both need to repent. That's judging correctly. That's how we're supposed to do it. Oh, you're sexually immoral living together. Oh, did you live together before you got married? And were you sexually immoral? So who are you to judge? So Jesus is saying, don't judge hypocritically. We make judgments about everything. So the person who says, don't judge me, man. Hey, dude, the Bible judges you already. I'm just telling you it's wrong. And if I've done it, I am wrong too. We are both wrong. We're both destined for hell unless we repent. That's how we're supposed to do it. Don't let anybody stifle you by them saying, don't judge me. You know, you're just as, I bet you've done bad things too, right? That shouldn't shut you up. That you just open your mouth for the grace and mercy of God and you extend that to others. And you say, I'm saved and this is why and I was just like you. That's the Apostle Paul. He was a blasphemer, he said. And by the grace of God, he got saved. So uh, Jesus accuses them of making a hypocritical judgment. In, In other words, they will circumcise a child. Now that's work. I don't know if you've ever tried to circumcise a child, but... It's work, right? And Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath. And they say, you can't do that, but you can circumcise. Well, you know, also, the, the Jews on the Sabbath in the sanctuary, in the temple, what are they doing? They're sacrificing. 
Now they have these robes on and they're getting all bloody because they are sacrificing cows and doves and oxen and sheep and goats and they're slitting their throat and the blood went down from the temple down into the Kidron Valley and the blood would just flow especially on the festivals and they were working by the end of the day they were tired and they were taking pitchforks and they're throwing it up in the altar and making burnt offerings and then the priest would grab some of that meat and they'd pull it off they were cooking is what they were doing because the priest would take part of the sacrifice and they'd use that for their own food And they would accuse Jesus of doing wrong and healing somebody on the Sabbath, but they work on the Sabbath, and yet they are not defiled. And so we want to remember not to make a hypocritical judgment, and Jesus just points this out right to them in the face. Verse 25, at that point, after chastening the Jews for making a hypocritical judgment, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? The multitudes knew The Jews are trying to kill Jesus. Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? Now, here's where a transition probably comes in, where the Jews who belong to the leadership, the Pharisees, they are probably, they could be, speaking here in verse 27. But we know where this man is from when the Christ comes. No one will know where he is from. Maybe they're seeding that into the group, or maybe it's just the group that doesn't know scripture do we know from scripture where the christ comes from we do he's born in bethlehem the magi who came to herod and then herod sought after the the pharisees sadducees they wanted to know where the messiah would be born they said bethlehem and that's where the magi were headed that's the second one here multitudes can be mistaken when scripture is forsaken these multitude of people here were completely mistaken about knowing where the Christ comes from. Scripture is clear that he was to come from Bethlehem. Now, getting this incorrect, I've got 10 minutes here, so I'm going to speed up a little bit. Knowing the Scripture is imperative. How about this? Maybe you know the Scripture like this. Maybe you don't know the Scripture like this. In the beginning, which occurred near the start, there was nothing but God, darkness and some gas. The Bible says the Lord thy God is one, but I think he must have a lot, he, he must be a lot older than that. Anyway, God said, give me a light, and someone did. Then God made the world. He split the Adam and made Eve. Adam and Eve were naked, but they weren't embarrassed because mirrors hadn't been invented yet. Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating one bad apple, so they were driven from the garden of Eden. I'm not sure what they were driven in though because they didn't have cars. Adam and Eve had a son Cain who hated his brother as long as he was able. Pretty soon all the early people died off except for Methuselah who lived to be like a million or something. There were also some minor league prophets but I guess we don't have to worry about them. After the Old Testament came the New Testament. Jesus is the star of the New Testament. He was born in Bethlehem in a barn. I wish I had been born in a barn too because my mom is always saying, close the door. Were you born in a barn? It would be nice to say, as a matter of fact, I was. During his life, Jesus had many arguments with sinners like Pharisees and the Republicans. Jesus, Jesus also had 12 opossums. The way, you get the idea? Now, I mean, this comes from kids, how they describe the Bible. And if we are immature in our faith, we will not have a grasp of what Scripture has to say. Now, 
Jesus, at this particular point in verse 27, there's a lot more to that, but I'm just going to go on. Verse 27, but we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he was from. Verse 28, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out. In your Bible, you can circle this. This word in the Greek is scream or shriek. (laughs) Now, you picture Jesus. He's sitting down, maybe on a stool, maybe on a stone block, maybe on the ground, and you picture him cross-legged in the lotus position, maybe, looking up at the crowd who's standing around him and teaching him. That's not what Jesus did. Now, when you scream or shriek, do you do it sitting down? You are standing up. If you're screaming or shrieking, are your hands in the air? Jesus is yelling at the top of his lungs, okay, in response to what was just said. That when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. He's screaming at this point. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. I mean, he is just screaming at these people. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So what do you think he's doing to these Jewish leaders? You think he's a little bit uptight? I think he is passionate at this point and he is finger in the eye to these people. He is accusing them right there in front of the multitudes. Do you think this is making them happy? It is not making them happy. Jesus is making these guys look like fools. Verse 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. So they went, I'm going to get you. And they couldn't. Nobody could go forward. The Lord was holding them back. The Holy Spirit was holding them back. Verse 31, still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? He's turning the crowd and the Jews are becoming apoplectic. The veins are popping out of their neck. They're talking to each other. They're probably blaspheming and at that particular point. They're getting so upset. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. That's it. You've done it. We're going to get you. And you can see how this is just rising. The Jews experience irritation over the confrontation with Jesus. Now, I love a good fight. I, I have to admit it. I love it when the bully gets taken down. You've seen, I've talked about this before, where you've seen the bullies at the school and some kid is, is uh, using his cell phone to videotape what's going on. I saw this one recently, a big kid. He's big. He's probably 200 pounds. And he's, he's in high school and he has his backpack on. And some kid comes up and flips his hat off like that. And the kid turns around, real calm. He just turns around. He takes off one arm, his left arm. You can tell he's left-handed. He takes off one arm of his backpack, walks over to the guy and just takes the guy out I mean the guy's on the ground after that and he just puts it back on and he starts walking away I just yeah 
I'm just rejoicing over stuff like that when that takes place. And Jesus is doing this verbally, just finger in the eye repeatedly to these guys. They're getting upset. Oh, let's get the police and go get them. And they can't get them. Jesus said, verse 33, I am with you only for a short time and then I'm going to go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And so God tells even his persecutors his plans. That's number four. But this idea, I could get into the section 33 through 36. Obviously, they did not understand what Jesus was talking about. And Jesus was letting them know what he was going to do. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. In other words, God has told us his entire plan. We know what's coming. We can anticipate it. It is going to happen just like the sun is going to rise tomorrow. We can be sure about it. And he is explaining, explaining even to his persecutors what he is going to do, how he is going back to the Father. So if you want to know what God's plan is for all of eternity, you just go ahead and look at Scripture. He spells it all out. And when he gives it to the prophets, the prophets write it down, we read it, and we can disseminate it once we learn it. Verse 37, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now you have to get the context here of what's going on. On the last day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. There are tons of people who were there. And they have this thing called a lulav. All of these devout Jews are carrying a lulav. A lulav is made up of three different branches and they carry this lemon or something citrus with them. On one side, they have a willow branch. On another side, they have a myrtle branch. This is a crepe myrtle right out here in this corner and in this corner. These are crepe myrtles. And so if you took a branch of that, that crepe myrtle, it's kind of, the leaf is kind of shaped like an eye and that's what's representative of the eye, the palm that is in there. There's a palm in the center piece that's representative of the spine and the, um, the willow is representative of the lips and the citrus is representative of the hearts. And they bind this up in a particular way and they're carrying it around and it's just kind of some thing that they do on the Feast of Tabernacles. So everybody's carrying one of these. They're going around and the high priest went to the pool of Siloam. They got some water out of there and they do this every single day. They take this chalice, this vase, whatever it is, this container of waters made of gold, and they take it to the temple, and at the base of the altar, they pour out this water from the pool of Siloam. And they repeat Psalm 118 that is there. In Psalm 118, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, let us thrive. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So as they're pouring this out, Jesus stands up. In the middle of all of this, and he yells out on the, in a loud voice, it says in verse 37. Remember, he's almost screaming before, and now in a loud voice. Jesus stood and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So they're just saying, Hosanna in the highest, save now. And he goes, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I mean, talk about a disruption. 
This is a huge disruption. He's considered a prophet. He's teaching in the courts. Thousands of people are there. He just messes everything up. And these people are getting so uptight about what's going on, they just can't stand it. What has taken place? I, I would have loved to have been there. Now, he's, when he says, living water, or this water, come to me and drink, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were later to receive. Up to that time, he had not been given. It had not, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified or yet glorified. Now, we are, I haven't finished I have like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to give them to you. You're past the time. I'm just going to give them to you. And I'll finish up this one next week. It has to do with these next few verses here to verse 53. The crowd was confused about Jesus. The Jews and their cohorts accused Jesus. Those who believed would be infused with the spirit by Jesus. And Jesus refused to be silent about who sent him and who he was. That would be number eight. That's all of them, right? Three. Did I not give you three? Three. Jews experienced irritation over the confrontation with Jesus. Okay, I'm going to finish up these few verses next week. But do you guys have any questions about this? Good, let's pray. Father, we thank you just for the passion that comes across in your word and how Jesus was standing up yelling in a loud voice trying to convince help us Lord to have that same passion that spirit within us that we would be such a witness and we know that the world hates you and they will hate the spirit that lives in us and they will hate us but Lord help us to be those witnesses just like Jesus was Help us to be just like him. We thank you for your word and what it says to us. Help us to apply it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.